So welcome to another episode of Ideas Without Borders. This is a continuation from Mandy's interview about her experiences as a Queen Elizabeth scholar on a four-month work term abroad in Kampala, Uganda. I'm here today with Marvin from InVenture, the organization that Mandy worked with during her time in Kampala, to learn a little bit more about the energy landscape in Uganda as well as what InVenture as an organization is doing to accelerate access to clean energy. Welcome, Marvin. Thank you, Simon, for having me. As a little bit of background, Marvin and I met last year during the WISE Innovation Lab in Waterloo, Ontario, where a group of experts in the energy access sector from all over the world came together for three days to share ideas and talk about different ways they could collaborate on their respective projects to expand the knowledge base for energy access solutions in a variety of different contexts. And of all the different people that I had a chance to speak with during the podcast, that's episode 16 if you want to check it out afterwards, unfortunately I didn't get a chance to speak with Marvin because there were just too many people going around at the same time. Here we are again today for a little bit more of an in-depth discussion about InVenture specifically. If you haven't listened to Mandy's interview yet about her experience, I encourage you to do so either before this episode or after listening to this episode. So let's begin by talking a little bit about the energy landscape in Uganda, just to provide everyone with a little bit of context when we talk about clean energy and energy access. Marvin, could you take a moment to give us a little background on what this looks like in Uganda? Sure. So I've been working in the energy access sector for the last six years, and um, I'm so excited to be here talking to you all about the energy landscape in Uganda, uh, specifically in the last mile where energy access is still a very big challenge. So for to give you a clearer background, uh, 85% of the Ugandan population does not have access to energy, which is a very startling figure for many and for many stakeholders and um, leaders around the world. And 93% of Uganda's energy demand is met by tree biomass. And this is where um, firewood comes into play as a very popular source for cooking fuel. And of course, that also translates to a lot of deforestation that's going around because that wood is needed to to cook food. The most common cooking method in Uganda, particularly in rural Uganda, is what we call the three stone method, where firewood is used to cook food in a pan and that pan is held by three big stones. So just to paint uh, an image in your mind, imagine three big stones that are placed like in a triangular form. And under those stones, um, you put there your firewood and light it up with um, with fire. And once that heat, heat starts going, uh, you put on your pan of food and your food starts to cook. But the challenge with that is that this particular method of cooking doesn't trap the heat that's necessary to cook food for a long term. So a lot of heat is lost in the process and that translates to the food cooking longer and of course needing more firewood to keep the fire going. 
And it's also important to note that the rate at which trees are planted is now being outpaced by the rate at which our population is increasing. It's currently estimated that the population of Uganda in 2020 is 45 million and it's expected to balloon to 76 million in 2040, which is also a very startling uh, realization for many. The large scale producers of energy are hydropower plants in the country, and those only serve just a small percentage, 1%. And in the last few years, due to large investments and innovation, we're seeing a growing number of large-scale plants being built, especially around large and mini hydro plants and PV plants in the eastern part of the country that has an abundance of wind. These are all being put in place in order to deter the big reliance on traditional fuels, which is firewood, and also have an end goal of, bu- of boosting economic growth in the country. And just to clarify, PV is photovoltaic, correct? Exactly. We have a goal as a country to be a middle-income country by 2040, and that can be seen in a very big document. It's called the Vision 2040 Policy. Um, and many policymakers have concluded that energy access will actually play a big role in helping to achieve that goal of being a middle-income country. You know, when we look at energy access in general, and this also happens in many sub-Saharan Af- African countries, is that energy access is important for both domestic and industrial sectors. When you look at the domestic uh, angle, there's something that we call indoor air pollution where 4 million people globally die because of ingesting toxic fumes that are released by kerosene lamps, which is still a very big um, method of lighting households at night. And so, you know, these toxic fumes are not good in the long term for our bodies. And that's how um, a lot of people are dying. When we come to the industrial part of that, uh, we need power to basically run factories in, in the country. And, you know, over the last few years, Uganda has been really growing in the manufacturing sector. We're seeing a lot of steel industries that are coming up all over the country. Uh, We have a very big source of limestone in the country, which is a raw material for cement. So these factories use a lot of energy. And for those factories to continue running, there is a heavy need for power. And as much as large-scale projects are important, we also can't forget small-scale decentralized energy access in form of household clean technologies like solar lanterns and improved cookstoves. Solar lanterns are a cleaner alternative for kerosene lamps. Also, just to paint an image of what a kerosene lamp is, it's shaped like a tin, and on top of that tin, there's a thread that is connected to to the inside of the tin, and inside that tin is kerosene, and kerosene obviously is a product of oil. The fumes that come from that are not good at all. So when we look at the solar lanterns and improved cook stoves, these are really easy to move. They're very mobile and easy to use if instructions are provided by the retailer or whoever is selling the product and generally have a very good duration and more importantly, are able to save one's income in the longer term. Averagely, a household spends about 30 cents. I think I'll give that in dollars. I would have used Uganda shillings, but that might confuse 
some of your listeners, Simon. <laughs> so <laughs> on average, the household spends 30 cents on kerosene, which is a lot for a typical Ugandan household to, to afford. And that 30 cents will light up the home for the night. And so when you multiply that by the number of days in a month, 30 days, that comes to about $9 a month spent on just kerosene. And when you gain multiply that by the number of uh, months in a year, that comes to about $100 in a year. The shocker here is that the cheapest solar lantern that's in our program, which I'll talk about a bit later, is only $9. So you can look at the amount of savings that can happen over just um, investing in a simple solar lantern that's going to do the same purpose, but also prolong your life in an indirect kind of way. So uh, one thing that we've learned at Inventure is enterprise in the last mile or rural areas of a country can go a really long way in raising that economic awareness about how clean energy products can save income. But also these enterprises also distribute products at terms that are favorable to the customers in, in rural Uganda. This is a really important aspect that you bring up about energy access. A lot of the times when we speak about energy access, we talk mainly about electricity. But when we think about the different types of fuel sources, there's actually a lot of different health implications. And that being said, the startup time for processes like cooking and the efficiency using firewood. And I'm sure if any of you guys listening have been camping, know that there's a much longer time needed to get the same amount of work done in a kitchen, say in North America, where cook stoves are either electric or gas powered. Um, You can't really control too much how hot your surface is and you would also have to, I guess, wait longer for your stove to heat up to your desired temperature. And, you know, to paint an even clearer image in your mind, just being able to like start the fire, you have to spend additional time and energy getting your hands on the firewood itself and bringing that back to wherever it is that your cooking station is. And the cost of buying firewood can be measured not just in the monetary value, but also the time it takes and the effort it takes out of your day to be carrying that firewood back. And, you know, if in the grand scheme of things, if you were to forward your access to energy such that you wouldn't have to spend time procuring your fuel source, that's free time for you to be doing other things that may be more productive towards the betterment of your quality of life in other aspects, such as education, such as health, um, such as economic development, and so on. So really interesting points there. I know that, Marvin, you and your organization, Inventure, are starting to work towards this aspect and accelerating the access to cleaner forms of energy and more efficient forms of energy. Could you elaborate a little bit more about the motivations there for why InVenture is, I guess, doing the work that it's doing in terms of enterprises? Yeah, Simon, I think you were reading my mind just now when you were talking about how energy access um, relates to economic growth. I, I really want to agree with that. Um, before I answer your question just now, I, I wanted to also highlight how you know, SDG7, which is access to clean energy for all, you know, resonates a lot with a lot of the SDGs that have been put forward by the UN. 
and in particular that also goes to economic growth and health if women and children in the household are ingesting these fumes then in the longer term they're not only putting their health at risk but also losing a lot of valuable time when you know sourcing for this firewood and it's not just the time that's a factor here but also the security because to look for the firewood some uh, people have to really travel as far as five kilometers just to pick firewood from a place where it's in abundance and again it goes back to what i was saying earlier on the rate at which trees are being cut is really absurd in the country because our rate of population increase is being outpaced by the way we reforestate our trees so going back to your question, yes, Inventure is very focused on supporting enterprises. Over the last four years, as we've worked in the energy access sector, we've seen that, first of all, there's the bigger problem, which is lack of energy access for many. And then when you go lower, the problem comes more to the lack of support for enterprises. Uganda has in the past been named one of the most entrepreneurial countries in the world, and that was a very big piece of news for me personally because if anybody ever came to Uganda they would agree with you that there is a business almost anywhere you go whether it's someone selling fruit or someone selling uh, chewing gum or someone selling uh, avocados on the street it's there's business everywhere because that's a source of livelihood for so many people and so what Inventure is doing is tapping into that existing trend. And we found that there are very many entrepreneurs, even aspiring entrepreneurs in the country, but these aspiring entrepreneurs just lack one simple thing, which is access to finance and also the training they need to run a successful business. If you ask anybody, I think for me, if when every time I look at, at an entrepreneur, I think that commands some level of respect because we we know that entrepreneurs take on some level of risk when they are starting their ventures. So that obviously commands, even, even when you don't know it, it's going to command some level of respect from, from anybody. So at Inventure, we're tackling this energy problem through enterprises. Specifically, we work with CBOs, those are community-based organizations, which are non-profit organizations in the country that exist or are set up by local individuals in different villages. And what these CBOs do is run initiatives or interventions, um, improving life in general. So it could be maternal health, it could be skilling of youth in the community. It could also be around farming uh, methods that are smart in nature. So we identify the CBOs or they come to us and we propose to them our solution, which I'll talk about in a second. But that solution is essentially a solution that's going to enable them launch a clean energy enterprise from within their CBO. And this clean energy enterprise will have a responsibility of selling the products that I just talked about, that's the cook stove, solar lanterns, non-electric water filters and briquettes. So those are the four major product categories that we sort of advocate for in our access challenge. Currently, there's over 10,000 CBOs across Uganda, and we have 130 districts in the country, which is very astounding. <laughs> yeah. But that's what it is. And these CBOs are typically registered, formally registered at the district level. And they have to adhere to local government regulations, sign constitutions, 
submit their statement of accounts and, and you know, function like a typical NGO organization. Uh, but keeping in mind that all the interventions that they'll be running are very local driven and are, you know, working to increase the livelihood of people in their areas. One thing I forgot to mention is that the CBOs are very dependent on grants at the moment. And so when we're proposing to them our program, it's a bit tough because ours is not a grant financing mechanism. It's really a loan that we are advocating for. I see. Another question I had about these CBOs is whether or not they coordinate across different districts. So if, for example, if we had three districts neighboring each other and they were all working towards, I don't know, say like an educational goal, would you, in your experience, have you seen any of like cross-district, cross-CBO collaborations, or do they more so work independently as their own entity? Yeah, uh, to a larger extent, the CBOs work really independently, but if they have an opportunity to work with another CBO that might be stronger in a certain aspect, then there's an opportunity for them to work together, but keeping in mind that whatever intervention will happen will have to start locally within the area that the CBO is located. It's very uncommon for the CBO to start interventions that are not very needed in their area and jump over to another district. So if there's a level of collaboration, it's mostly in terms of maybe training, human resources, uh, tapping into the human resources of another CBO to enable individuals come and train the CBO in, you know, bookkeeping or smart farming methods. And then those lessons are taken over by a CBO for their community. Let's get a little bit into it. What exactly is InVenture? Cool. Uh, So InVenture is a social enterprise that incubates clean energy enterprises in the last mile. And what I mean by the last mile, those are areas that typically don't have access to the national grid located in rural areas of the country. InVenture was founded by Aneri Pradhan, a social entrepreneur that had a vision to find a solution for not just energy access, but also support for ecosystems, for enterprises. And the funny story here is that it was, it, you know, Aneri started by running a crowdfund and raised $2,000 to basically birth InVenture, which was really exciting. I don't think at the time she knew this was going to really balloon to what it is today. So InVenture in November of 2019 actually merged with the New Energy Nexus, which is an international organization that supports clean energy entrepreneurs around the world. So we are really super excited to be in the company of, you know, the existing structures that had already been set up by New Energy Nexus and also learning very many lessons from New Energy Nexus and all the chapters that they have around the world, like China, Southeast Asia, California, New York. So what the InVenture program does is providing that business toolkit that I just talked about. And toolkit comprises of loan financing, capacity building, and mobile tech. The financing is in form of a loan, and we're not doing grants like typical NGOs. We found that grants most likely reduce that motivation to create the impact that's needed, while a loan gives the CBO a bit of motivation to not only 
pay back the loan, but also use that loan very usefully. The loan is in form of a low-cost energy loan, which is up to $2,000 that is issued out in three tranches to the CBO, and that is repayable over a period of one year. The difference with our loans is that the loans are very low cost compared to what typical financial institutions in the country are offering. Our loans are up to 16% compared to loan products from financial institutions that can go up to 30%. The second part to our business toolkit is capacity building, and that comes in form of two major ways. The first being three-day boot camps that we hold four times a year. And the second part being business development fellowships. So the boot camps are basically training workshops where we invite all the CBOs that have onboarded the program in a certain quarter. And we go through training, we interact with the CBO on how they can maybe improve their financial management, marketing, how to bring on more customers, and also, you know, teach them more about the clean energy access sector as it is today. We also invite our partners, who are the suppliers of the products, to come to the boot camps. And the suppliers are able to train the CBOs and entrepreneurs on how to sell their products but also know where to go in case the product has an issue in the longer term. The second part, the business development fellows, these are volunteers that join the program and have an opportunity to work with a CBO for three months. We call the volunteers business development fellows and Mandy Coleman from the University of Waterloo actually happened to be one. We're excited about her podcast, by the way, Simon. And <laughs> What the fellows do is support the CBO on, you know, many, many aspects like logistics, marketing, uh, getting things off the ground. And the fellows are typically university graduates or even university students, uh, sometimes professionals who are willing to sacrifice three months of their life to support a CBO in keeping those business lessons that they would have learned at our boot camps. The fellows really play a very big role in our program, and we're thankful to the Queen Elizabeth Scholarship Program that has given us, you know, Mandy Coleman and Lillian from the University of Waterloo, who've been able to work with the CBOs. When we think about these boot camps for the respective CBOs and, you know, the training that they go through with your business development fellows and other staff at Adventure, are these held in their respective communities or do they all come to like a centralized location to interact with the buyers? That's a good question. Actually, the boot camps previously used to be very centralized. We, mm-hmm. uh, we used to invite all the CBOs that had onboarded the program to actually come to Kampala, which is the capital city of Uganda. But we found that, you know, having to ask entrepreneurs to move all the way from their districts, which are typically hundreds of kilometers away, was really difficult in terms of the time taken to just move. And so what we did starting in 2018 was to move the boot camps closer to the CBOs. And what that means is we would actually hold the boot camps near the locations of the CBOs in order to make that movement really easy and also to get a feel of the market situation in that region. And then in terms of the actual business fellows like Mandy, do they also work primarily in that same vicinity or are they just typically working in your main office in Kampala? 
So the fellows actually work directly and physically at the CBO. They only come to Kampala really for the training. And it's norm for us to have a, a dinner with the fellows before uh, we send them off to the CBO. The only time we get to really interact with them is over the phone and through our fantastic field team that is always checking on the CBOs and also checking on the fellows from time to time to make sure that things are going on really well. And I can see that if the physical distance between the different CBOs and main office in Kampala is so great, technology has a really important role in making sure that communication and information is readily accessible across these great distances. So is there any mobile tech that Envision is using to help with this process? Yeah, so Envision, uh, in the past, one of the things that we usually work with the CBO on is collecting sales data, because we not only want to know how they're doing on sales, but we also want to know what kind of products are working better in certain communities. And so what Envision does for us and for the CBO especially is we're able to get the data in real time and seeing the products that are working for in certain communities. But more importantly, the app is supporting the CBO in their bookkeeping. Um, so what the app does is that you're able to upload your sales for a certain day. You're also able to upload your expenses that you've spent in the business, whether it's transport or telephone or internet. And then you can also enter your inventory, the items that have been purchased for stock. And through these major three things, you're able to quickly generate P&L reports that show how the financial position of the CBO at a particular time X. And we find that that has really supported the CBO in knowing their trajectory to profit. Did this app take a long time to develop? I'm asking because there are a lot of listeners here on Ideas Without Borders that work in mobile app development and software development. So. Um, you know, shout out to those guys who are working hard on their algorithms. Just out of curiosity, did this app take quite a while to produce or was this something relatively easy to implement? So that's a actually interesting question. Our founder at the time, Aneri, was very key in uh, basically coming up with a vision. This had existed as a problem because we weren't getting the data in real time. Usually it was very paper based. So when the app came in, we were able to get that data. Um, but as to the you know, preparation for the app, the building, I might not know the full answer to that, but all I know is that it took some time. Even when the app came, there were a few tweaks that were done to it in order to get the very best out of it. And you know, that has continued even up to today, but right now it's still serving the purpose that it was built for, which is simply bookkeeping. And so with all of these different branches of work going on in, in venture, what does the situation look like now in terms of the different projects that you guys are committed to? So countrywide, we've now um, worked with 97 CBOs. So for each CBO that comes into a program, they end up creating an enterprise and that can be very in diverse forms. It could be a kiosk that is set up by the CBO to sell clean energy, or it could be a business that is door-to-door, 
the magnitude of that has really enabled us to continue adding more CBOs into the program because the loans that are repaid back to InVenture are used to invest in new CBOs and that's how the number has kept growing in Uganda. Recently, we also had an opportunity to extend our program into BDBD Refugee Settlement which is uh, a refugee settlement in northern Uganda that hosts over 250,000 people. And energy access in the settlement was also a bit of a challenge. And so we had an opportunity to work with the Response Innovation Lab in launching two kiosks there. And they're now providing products like cook stoves and solar lanterns, which have been the best-selling products so far. With these sorts of efforts going on in mind, In your opinion, what sort of trajectory is Uganda on in terms of accelerating their access to clean energy? Are we looking at a completely carbon neutral country at any time soon? Are we looking at, I know you've mentioned cooking technologies becoming a really major point for improvement in these decentralized communities and solar lanterns replacing kerosene lanterns. But as an entire country, can you expect a transition from primarily fossil fuels, if you want to call it that, like oils, petrol, you know, kerosene, firewood, immediately towards solar energies and hydropower and something that is like drastically lower in the carbon footprint? Or are we more likely to expect sort of like a gradual transition using oil as like, I guess, a transitionary, if that's even a word, fuel source that will sustain all energy or yeah energy requirements for some time as these technologies get better. And the reason I'm asking this is because in a lot of other places in the world, such as, for example, if we want to bring it locally to Ontario, coal has just only recently been phased out as a fuel source here in the province. And now, you know, through the FIT program, the development of more carbon neutral and renewable technologies for the energy sector, uh, we're now starting to see a cleaner energy landscape. But if you think about all of the years leading up to where we're at right now in terms of renewable energy technologies, oil has played a big role in sustaining our development trajectory in all other sectors of society. So can the same, I guess my question would be, can the same be said for Uganda? Or is there kind of like a stepwise function in jumping directly from something like firewood to something that's immediately carbon neutral like solar energies? Yeah, that's actually a very good question. It's interesting that you've brought up the uh, Ontario example. I think that's very good to compare. It's very, very early to bid farewell to, you know, oil, an oil-based economy, because for many decades, that's been the way the economy has been moving forward. But one thing that we also see as a country is that we actually have vast crude oil resources that are still in the ground. And the government is working really hard to, you know, set up the refineries and the infrastructure in place, like an oil pipeline that will be able to transport the oil to the coast. Because Uganda is a landlocked country, that's another thing. For, that's another story for another day. But uh, yeah, it's very early to bid farewell to an oil economy um, because number one, you know, the vast crude oil resources are going to eventually come out of the ground. That will you know, be sold to other countries, but also some of this oil will have to be used within the country. And a lot of African countries have actually been very rich in oil resources, like Nigeria and some Southern African countries. 
But I think in my opinion, energy transaction is a very progressive process and that is very dependent upon mindset, technology advancement, and also maybe the level of economic growth in the country itself. EU countries and North American countries, some Asian economies, South American economies are very strong in you know clean energy innovations like smart grids and smart meters and of course electric vehicles. But when you look at also these economies, I was reading a really interesting research paper the other day um, and it was saying that for these economies to get to that level where they are at now in terms of energy innovations, they had to also endure some of these bottlenecks like, you know, that technology advancement and the level of economic growth. Mm-hmm. It's very, very difficult for that leap to happen from, for example, firewood to an electric vehicle, from firewood to smart meters. That's a very difficult leap. But it takes time. It's very progressive. In Uganda, we have very interesting and useful policies like the Vision 2040 policy uh, and also the biomass energy strategy that's looking at leveraging you know, biomass to become not only efficient, but also very useful for the economy because we have a very good climate for trees to grow. So by leveraging on that existing resource, we're looking at how maybe we can, you know, produce more efficient, let's say, cook stoves or uh, briquettes that can steer people away from using traditional methods, which are not only harmful for their health, like we talked earlier on, but also cleaning in nature. It sounds like developing this energy landscape is a very complicated process that gives you a lot to think about in terms of bottlenecks, like you mentioned. Mindset is definitely one of them. We want to make sure that these transitions to new technologies doesn't necessarily clash with cultural values associated with energy technologies. We also want to make sure that we don't have any bottlenecks in any related research that's going into developing these technologies. And, you know, we also want to make sure we don't have any bottlenecks bottlenecks in the economic development to continue supporting the kinds of work going on while also improving the social development of the community as well. And so I think these are all really important things that you mentioned that provide really good food for thought when we talk about energy development. And I think this is really the theme of, I would say, energy access episodes on this podcast. It's that there are lots and lots of subtle details in the contexts of the communities you're working in when you talk about energy sector that you have to consider or else, you know, whatever it is, even if you have the fanciest technology out there, it's not necessarily going to be as effective as one would expect it to be. So it's really refreshing, again, to hear these same messages being echoed, but this time with actual like case specific uh, examples. Given that we have all of these things to think about, in your opinion, and by no means am I a policy expert or anything, but (laughs) would it be more effective to capitalize or to generate capital from these resources to other countries, not necessarily neighboring countries, like, for example, exporting oil to, I don't know, Southeast Asian countries, or if you were to export wood products or just raw wood to other places in the global market and bringing in capital as a result of those transactions, would you say that would be a better use of resources? Or would you say keeping these resources domestic and using them for domestic use is a more efficient effective strategy. It may not be one or the other. It might be a a mix and a partition, but what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, Simon. So when I look at it, I see 
you know, a lot of capital expenditure and, you know, costs that are going into the extraction of the oil in yeah. the ground. I don't remember the figures off the top of my head right now, but it's, you know, millions of dollars are being invested just to get the oil out of the ground and sell it to the oil economy. But yeah. there's need because as a country, we are investing heavily into that and we need to recoup those costs. So that is a factor in itself. Costs have already been incurred. You know, companies have already been tasked with the role of um, extracting the oil. Pipelines are already being built. There's going to be an airport. You know, the, the, the district is being redeveloped for oil to come. But I think that is a factor in itself. Those costs that have already been incurred have to be first of all, recouped. And then looking at the bigger picture, oil, of course, was needed a lot by so many countries in powering their economies and also in their mobility sectors. But when you look at a a continent like, you know, Europe, which is now veering so much away from oil, it's it's almost a a tiny scary thought as to what might happen in the near future when um, that oil starts going out. Yeah. Uh, because the, we know that the demand for fossils is really declining in some countries because they are advocating or adopting cleaner innovations by the day. Yeah. So looking at that, that's a very tiny, scary thought. But again, we, we just have to keep monitoring that and see how maybe this uh, resource can be leveraged both within the country, but also on other countries that are still to some level, depending on oil and gas to power their economies and in the sub-saharan sector mobility is still very very diesel driven literally cars require diesel to move and so so that demand is always going to be there and like i was saying earlier on uh the transition to you know cleaner innovations like electric vehicles for countries like uganda and other sub-saharan african countries that will take so long so there's a market that's right now available here in Africa. As to leveraging on our wood resources, we haven't had a situation where we're selling, you know, like briquettes to other countries, but a lot of talk has been made on that, especially in the biomass energy strategy that's already laid out as a policy. Uh, We're looking at how maybe we can sell briquettes to other countries that don't necessarily have a very uh, big forest cover. And that would be an opportunity for the economy. Let's talk a little bit about not Marvin from InVenture, but Marvin as an individual. Can you, for the sake of all the aspiring energy and economic developers out there of tomorrow, can you describe to us a little bit about how you came from your schooling to work in this clean energy access development space and what led you to it? Yeah, for sure. So I've been working in the energy access sector for about uh, six years now. I just have to say this. I think for me, energy is always going to be my passion for the rest of time. You know, from a very young age, actually, I did not envision a career or a job in in energy at all. I was very fortunate to go to school up to university level. My inclination at first was to enter into the world of corporate finance. I found it to be really exciting. As a high school student, a lot of grown-ups that I knew were really in in corporate finance, whether it was financial institutions or lending businesses. I thought that was really, really interesting because finance was what was moving the world. So after finishing high school, I 
went and focused on getting a finance degree, I got accepted into the international business program at Macquarie University. And I was really happy about that because Macquarie University is one of the best, if not the best institution in Uganda, and also has been hailed as one of the best universities in Africa. So I was really excited about that. And I went into that, but later on, again, changed into finance because finance called to me. And I was fortunate enough to complete that degree abroad in Malaysia. So around the time of graduation, there were two major things that excited me, which was, you know, getting a job in corporate finance. And I was already, you know, hunting, looking at people that were hiring in Uganda. Uh, And then the other thing that was also exciting was building the business that my dad had already started uh, in the hospitality industry. So I thought, okay, maybe I might veer into that if maybe the job prospect doesn't come to pass. And then, of course, at that time, Uganda had just started publicizing the availability of oil in the western part of the country. Mm. So when I looked at that, I felt like that really excited me. And I had an opportunity to do a master's in energy at the University of Dundee. I learned a lot about energy access, both renewable energy and non-renewable energy. What really stood out to me was energy access and how it can easily relate to economic growth for developing countries. And coming from a a developing country, I thought, okay, so this is where I'm really going to stay, that path, clean energy. And because, you know, we had extracted oil out of the ground, there were not very many opportunities at the time. Right. So I saw an opportunity with Adventure. I was really enamored by the scale at which they were growing in terms of CBOs. But also I looked at a little bit about the team and I liked what I saw. So I emailed Aneri directly, who was the founder at the time. And I told her, um, Aneri, I'm really liking what I see. If there's an opportunity, I'd like to come and maybe join you guys. Immediately she replied my email, I think the next day. I'll never forget that. And, and I, I started uh, at Inventure as a business fellow, just like what Mandy was doing. I had an opportunity to start my own energy enterprise with one of the CBOs that was in the program at the time called Vision for Humanity in, in the northern part of the country. And, you know, we sold products on market days. Uh, we went as far as the Rhino refugee camp, which is also a really big refugee settlement in Uganda. And I had an opportunity to start training people on how to, you know, to save money simply because that was something I knew at the time. And eventually later on offered me a program officer role and I've stayed on that track ever since, even now that we've merged with New Energy Nexus. I like to say that I have a really exciting role and it's very diverse. I get to lead on impact, research, communications and project management for all our training assignments that we have. And yeah, and even though I had a mission to really get into corporate finance, I want to think that I have not veered so far away from it because in venture, we still get to, you know, um, collectively vet the CBOs and look at financials basically just to make sure that not only the CBO able to pay us back, but also fundraising in general. I think that has also really excited me. 
you're absolutely right. Energy development and economic development go hand in hand. It's really interesting to see how you're able to, and I, I quote Dr. McCulloch from the Wise Innovation Lab, how you can combine these two areas and develop a really good synergy of your goals and your training and capabilities. So yeah. thanks for sharing that. Something I'm curious about, and this is the same question that I posed to all the other Wise Innovation attendees. If time were to go backwards, and you were to repeat your undergraduate experience, would you still choose to do finance? And if not, what other program would you have done? <laughs> wow, that's a really good question. I have to <laughs> back in time, or I have to think now if I was uh, back in 2013. I think I would still want to stay in the business kind of field, Mm -hmm. um, certainly not going to engineering because obviously I would have had to, <laughs> to start that from high school and get my mind ready for that. So yeah. I, would, I would still stay in the businessy field as they, as a lot of people call it now. But even with that in mind, I think I would want to look at something that's very innovative, especially in regards to climate or mm -hmm. energy. So uh, if I had to go back in time, I would maybe look out for a course that was um, maybe on energy, maybe economics or energy finance, something that would be really innovative for me because I think innovation really excites me um, looking at how you know, the world is changing so yeah. rapidly in terms of technological advancement. Even if I wouldn't stay so much into the engineering bit of it, mm -hmm. uh, I'd still stay in the business part. But cut that bit out, Simon, that little... <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. It, it's, it's good. It's good. It's good. No, but like all things said and done, it sounds like you would have been like a really great fit for the uh, environment and business program here at the University of Waterloo. If I was choosing a degree today, I think I would look ahead into yeah. the next, what, 10 or 20 or 30 years, what's going to be happening, what's going to be really big and where are my skills going to be well placed. If I had that opportunity, I would have definitely looked at clean energy courses like the one that you just mentioned, environment, which sounds really exciting, by the way. So <laughs> I think looking ahead is also really key. Yeah. If you're listening to this right now and you're wondering what courses to take next semester, look ahead at World Issues and really think about how you want to apply yourself once you are finished your degree and what sorts of skills that you would like to have under your belt to make you feel more prepared going into, quote unquote, the real world. <laughs> but, you know, learning never stops. Just because you finish a degree doesn't mean that you're not allowed to pick up new skills or become more knowledgeable in any certain area. You know, like I'm still in school, but for somebody like you, Marvin, like full time now, are there any things that you would still like to learn in your free time? Like a lot of my friends who are working full time now often say to me that the first little bit of their full time career mm -hmm. always makes them feel insufficient in what they know. And that the confidence they have in doing whatever it is they do slowly builds over time because they're always picking up and sometimes, in some cases, more things on the job as they're doing things compared to as, for example, when they were in school. So are there any things in the context of your current work that you would like to learn more about and how are you doing so? 
Yeah, uh, Simon, over the course of this uh, conversation, I think you've brought up really good points. Actually, I've been noting down some of the really nice things you, you were saying, especially about fossil fuel dependence in Ontario. I think I've noted that down and I think I'll have to look it up a bit later to get more depth on that. But I think if you have a job, it's very, very important to keep learning more about what's out there because if you stay in that little box of your job, doing your work every day without really getting to know what's out there, then at the end of the day, you're not only limiting yourself to knowledge, but also you can't really grow within that position. So what I specifically do, uh, I think is quite diverse. I first of all, love listening to podcasts and I, I listen to them as much as I can, especially on my commute to work. I'm also a very, very big advocate for those short courses that are online, which are usually free. I'll give an example of the Acumen course, which provides a ton of courses and they're usually very short, up to three weeks. And you learn something. I think those are really key because they're very up to date and you don't necessarily have to take on a full degree or part-time degree program. Also, I think now that we're living in a world of COVID, unfortunately, right now, you know, conferences are now being shifted to being virtual and I've had an opportunity to attend one conference which was going to happen, I think, in in Zimbabwe and I had an opportunity to attend it online and I think it was really cool learning so much about them. Yeah, I think in a nutshell, it's just good to look online to see resources that are there. And if you have the time, then you can also take on another program, whether it's a certificate or a diploma or a degree, uh, it's not going to really disrupt a lot of your day-to-day. So yeah. it's really important that way, yeah. In terms of effectiveness, I'd like to spend just a little bit more time, Marvin, with you in talking about how to gauge the effectiveness of your work. In other words, how do you measure success in what you do? Everything we've been speaking about up till this point makes your work sound very, very complex. And, you know, with all the things to consider in your community-based organizations, what metrics would you use to measure objectively or subjectively? the impact of the CBOs and what they're doing in their respective districts? Yeah, uh, it's interesting that you bring up that question. Uh, <laughs> I happen to be the impact guy within uh, InVenture, so uh, <laughs> I think this will, be <laughs> this will be easy for me to answer. Uh, nice, nice. Overall, I think the way we measure our impact as an organization is starting at the top, looking at what is it that we're trying to achieve as an organization. And our mission is to basically and simply create clean energy enterprises in the last mile. And to achieve that, we are guided by two main things, which are the activities that we do on a day-to-day and also the outcomes that those activities are producing. Mm -hmm. So our activities include, you know, financing and the capacity building, and that's in form of the loans that we issue out and the capacity building is in form of the boot camps and the fellows that are deployed to the CBO. And we have to gauge the success of those particular inputs. So for financing, we measure, you know, of course, the loans that we've issued out, uh, the loans that are being repaid back in time. Also for the capacity building, we measure that by the number of boot camps that we've done in a year. 
how many people came to the boot camps and the level of participation in the boot camps. That's very key for us because it's very common for people to come to a workshop or a conference and leave without maybe learning a lot. Mm-hmm. So we, uh, like I said earlier on, the boot camps are very interactive as much as possible. And then going beyond that, we also look at the number of fellows that have been deployed and we also measure impact on the fellows like you know the gender the age and the programs that they would have been doing in their university and our outlook or outcome looks at the number and spread of the enterprises that have basically been formed in our network of cbo's and also the products that are being sold and this is really key that's why envision was very key in this we want to capture as much sales data as much as possible to see the products that are working well and the communities that are taking on a specific products and then this goes back to us and we ask ourselves why are, are in certain products like the briquettes working in a certain village x so yeah. we investigate that a bit more and that guides our future recruitment of cbo's also like the other indirect outcomes that come as a result like we also want to think that we've raised a certain level of awareness to clean energy in general for the communities that have the CBOs in their communities. And this can be measured by looking at the number of market activation campaigns that are happening. And these are very interesting in a traditional kind of sense because these campaigns are usually a truck that has maybe a bunch of cook stoves and solar lanterns. And that truck basically just drives around (laughs) the area, you know, with a microphone announcing that, hey, we have cook stoves here. If you want to come and buy one, please do so. Uh, the prices are subsidized and uh, we'll give you warranty and guarantee that the product is, is genuine. So uh, I think that in a way also raises awareness uh, as much as it can be. Some will consider noise pollution, but it, it, yeah. it raises awareness. Someone can keep it at the back of their mind that, oh, there is, someone is actually paying attention to, or someone is actually advocating for people to use cook stoves, not fire. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, always a trade-off, right? And it's important to make that distinction between like, you know, there's a certain level of good that this is doing <laughs> versus yeah. the number of, say, for example, complaints we're getting on uh, <laughs> of too much information being thrown in our face. I really like how you're breaking down metrics for specific aspects of what you do at Inventure. I think that's really important rather than having one generalized, I guess, set of units for measuring everything you do. It really speaks volumes to how much thinking goes into actually running an organization that works in this kind of space. So using the same metrics that you just described, not all of them, (laughs) just the ones that you've listed so far, can you share some examples of successes? Yes. Inventure basically is run by 10 people Mm -hmm. who are working very, very hard. Everyone is always busy doing something. Globally, the New Energy Nexus uh, organization has over 50 people that are running, you know, the different chapters all around the world. So we, our 10 just add into the 50 plus people. And I think if I had an opportunity to ask my colleagues what they're really most proud of, I think most of us would agree on the entrepreneurs because the entrepreneurs are what drive us or drive our motivation. If we see entrepreneurs succeeding, then it will seem like we are doing something right, for sure. So the entrepreneurs play a big role in the level of success we want to see. And we've also further been impressed by seeing other CBOs and entrepreneurs that have become 
investment ready and are getting more funding from other sources, not necessarily just in venture. So that's always good. And this funding can be in form of grants, but also sometimes in form of loans from other sources. So that that's always very exciting because we know that that funding will be used for, for growing the energy enterprise that has been basically birthed through a partnership with InVenture. And then we, we are also really proud and always excited to see CBOs that are starting other social enterprises, not necessarily just focused on clean energy. I'll give an example. We have a CBO called the Paul Entrepreneurs Academy, which has started up another socially oriented business, which you know produces mosquito rep- repellent soap for yep. the communities because malaria is also another challenge that we have as a country. So that's always interesting to learn. And another CBO called Initiative Uganda has started producing reusable sanitary pads for girls in school. And so these are all socially oriented businesses and that's what excites us in general. Sounds like you're doing really, really great work. We're reaching the end of our episode here. I'm going to provide a little bit of time here for you to share some messages, ways to get involved if whoever is listening is interested in, you know, potentially collaborating or partnering with InVenture or you as an individual. I'm going to throw a little twist in here. Because these episodes are a little time capsule for all the people speaking in this episode, do you have any messages you would want to share with Marvin from 10 years into the future? So, you know, in 50 words or less, no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Um, Just, uh, you know, go. (laughs) That's a very good question. If I was to advise a future me, mm, let me see. (laughs) I think I would want to ask questions like, what did you do over the last 10 years? Did you create any impact on an individual level? And and, And I'd be curious to know what that is. I think I would still be very much so in the innovation space uh, in terms of clean energy. I think, Simon, the question was advice, not questions, right? I don't necessarily think it has to be advice. Questions are just as valid. If you want to do some goal setting right now, you can sort of make like a personal constitution here and now and say like, Marvin, 10 years from the future, I'm saying this now. These are my goals for the next couple of years. And, you know, if, if I had a time machine, I'd like you to report back to me on how I actually did. Um, I, I would have hoped that the future me has really stayed on the same path that I'm on right now. And, you know, continue to work with entrepreneurs uh, around the world or even here in Uganda. I think in a nutshell, yeah. <laughs> For those students, professionals, organizations that are interested in learning more about InVenture and what you guys do, or even reaching out to collaborate on a project, if there are students, shout out to Waterloo, looking for co-op placements, are there any links or web pages or places to look specifically on how to get involved with InVenture? Yeah, uh, I think also, let me just start out by saying shout out to Waterloo. I really, <laughs> really, really enjoyed my sh- very, very short visit um, to the campus last year. I got to interact with like, I think five students, <laughs> but I really saw, it was really fun being on the campus. It's such a beautiful town and uh, city. Um, but yeah, on how students can get involved, um, of course, the first thing is our business development fellowship program, which is run by my colleague Smith. 
Um, what is good about this is that you can either become a physical fellow, which would need you to come down to Uganda and spend three months here, or you could do it virtually because now not only the COVID pandemic that we're going through right now, but this has been sort of a program that we've been running under the fellowship where people that are not necessarily able to lend their skills to a CBO in Uganda through our program can do that online. So it would uh, essentially involve the student or the graduate or the professional doing a couple of calls a week checking in on the progress of the business, designing financial management tools, whether it's on Excel, and also, you know, looking deeply at the business and kind of seeing how you can work together on that. And we have all that laid out in the onboarding packet for fellows. But we've had, I think, over the course of the last four years, we've had at, at more than 70 fellows, some of whom have become repeat fellows because they've enjoyed the program so much. So yeah so if you want to see more information about that definitely our website adventureenterprises.org has more information if you had this on the podcast you feel free to reference that and we'll listen mm-hmm. to that yeah in a nutshell and also new energy nexus has a slack channel that has over 600 experts, professionals, people in clean energy from around the world. And every day, this group of people is posting really, really exciting content and and opportunities in the Slack network. So the opportunities are diverse. They could be funding opportunities, uh, job opportunities, placement opportunities, study, etc., etc., And all these professionals are from around the world. So that's also very exciting. Of course, if you want to learn more, please sign up to our newsletters, which are are released monthly with opportunities in clean energy and events that are posted from around the world. And these events are sometimes uh, virtual. So that's also really exciting. And you can sign up for that newsletter on the New Energy Nexus website. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Marvin, for taking the time to chat with me and sharing your knowledge of not just your own career path, but also of the energy landscape in Uganda and how InVenture is accelerating the efforts to make clean energy more accessible. Uh, We hope that this episode has given a lot of food for thought for all of the future energy access developers out there and the economic developers out there. If you want to hear more episodes like this, let us know. If you want to connect with Marvin, the link's in the podcast description below, and we will see you next time on Ideas Without Borders.